Assalamu alaikum warahmatullahi wabarakatuh. Bismillahirrahmanirrahim. And welcome to the second session of Islamic Book Reviews. For those of you who are new, this is a, an opportunity for you to watch me interview Omar Anshasi about his very large collection of books. It was actually something I started up in conversation with my friend Omar to basically explore what he'd been reading lately. And so Islamic Book Reviews, the title draws on a word that was developed by Marshall Hodgson famously, um, and he used it to describe aspects of Muslim society that were not strictly developed out of a religious dimension, uh, but were sort of part and parcel of the broader um, Islamic culture or the broader culture of Muslim society. And we're kind of extending that metaphor to include Islamic studies as a Western discipline. And so we'll be looking over the course of a weekly discussion, roughly hour long, at recent books that have come out in academic presses from broadly the arena of Islamic studies. And this week's book uh, is going to be introduced by Omar in just a moment. But I wanted to just very briefly introduce myself and Omar. I'm Usama Al-Azami. Uh, for those who are sort of new to the um, broadcast, um, I, I'm a lecturer at Oxford University and Omar Anshasi is uh, a postdoctoral fellow at uh, the University of Edinburgh. Um, and we'd like to welcome you uh, today um, to discuss uh, a book by James Pickett, which has just come out, um, whose title is Polymaths of Islam. So I'll it up to the screen. And now uh, will... This is Cornell University Press's uh, wonderful recent Polymaths of Islam, uh, which is really uh, an exploration of scholarly culture, uh, networks of patronage, and uh, uh, even scholarly migration in Bukhara from the period approximately 1747 to 1920. It focuses mostly on, on this period. Um, and... Uh, Yes, I. I uh, well, that's, that's fine, and, and, and we'll, we'll basically Omar. I will be giving Omar about ten to fifteen minutes to give his take on the book, which he is a very careful reader, as we will uh, those of us who know him know well. Um, but uh, inshallah, we'll benefit from his insights uh, into the book in those ten to fifteen minutes. After that, I'll kind of engage him. Uh, I've not read the book. Um, I mean, I started reading the book uh, earlier today, but I've not read the book in as much detail as Omar will have. And so I'll be engaging in some questions based partly on my reading of the book and partly uh, on the discussions that I, me and Omar have had so far. And um, that will go on for another 10 or 15 minutes and then we'll open up uh, the floor for Q&A. Now, people are more than welcome to ask questions and answers. Um, anything that you type up into the search bar, not the search bar, sorry. So if you're joining us from Facebook, you'd uh, write in comments and those would show up for us. If you're on YouTube, you'd um, write in the chat bar as far as I understand. And if you're on Twitter, I'm not entirely sure exactly. I think you might need to tweet. But uh, in any case, um, please feel free to ask questions now um, and we will pick them up. We'll be able to show them on the screen as we're dealing with them. <clears throat> and Omar and I are also very keen to receive any feedback from yourselves. So please feel free to share those. We won't necessarily sort of uh, address them here, but it'll be uh, useful for us to think about these things. So without further ado, I'd like to hand over to Omar. So please uh, take it away, inshallah. <laughs> Sure. Well, thank you all for tuning in and do keep sending in those suggestions. We find them very helpful. And uh, this book, as I said, explores uh, scholarly culture in Bukhara uh, during the rule of the, of the Mangat dynasty, uh, which lasts all the way from the mid 18th century until the Soviet conquest of the city in 1920. And uh, this book draws heavily on 
a wide range of sources, including uh, you know many manuscript sources. So it, it is highly original. And he places Bukhara against the backdrop of what he terms the uh, Persianate uh, or Persian cosmopolis. And uh, this, this is a kind of important conceptual uh, point the book makes, and he draws on uh, Sheldon Pollock's uh, work on the Sanskrit cosmopolis. So the way that uh, you know, languages and ways of life and textual canons um, enjoy this kind of celebrity, uh, widespread uh, popularity across vast geographic regions. Um, and it's a book that does many things. It stresses the many hats worn by uh, scholars in Bukhara. Bukhara functioned as a kind of magnet uh, for uh, scholars who migrated from uh, many other parts of Central Asia, also uh, places like Siberia, uh, Xinjiang, and uh, to a lesser extent, the Volga Ural region. And he talks about the kinds of social roles Olamet played, the sorts of texts they read. And uh, as in the title of the book, Polymaths of Islam, he mentions that Olamet uh, in this context uh, were not simply scholars of, say, Islamic law, uh, but they were also poets. Uh, they also played important roles in the Mangat bureaucracy. And uh, really, to a great extent, monopolized cultural production in this context. Now, that hasn't always been true, as we know, um, in the uh, in Islamic history. Right. But what you find among Bukhara and ulama is really this collapsing of social roles and kind of textual and cultural competencies all into the uh, being enfolded sort of into the ulama and their, their range of competence. So, for instance, um, Bukharan, uh, so ulama and Sufis were not really distinct groups in this period, and many uh, faqirs and, and other kinds of Sufis qalandaras actually ha would have had, uh, most of them in fact, a madrasa background. Uh, and he discusses networks of migration, and he, one of the things I really like about this, this book is um, how he illustrates it very helpfully with charts and figures. This uh, one is a very originally done a heat map, uh, if I can hold that up to the camera, depicting uh, patterns of migration from Central Asia to Bukhara. Um, and uh, another one, because he, he draws very heavily on uh, regional histories or city histories, histories of Bukhara, this long established tradition in Islamic scholarship, as well as uh, biographical dictionaries known locally as uh, Tazkiras. Uh, so here you have um, a graph illustrating madrasa construction over time. You, you can't see the numerals perhaps, but it does give you a nice indication. And Bukhara really was a magnet uh, and a kind of sink of scholarship. So uh, by, by the turn of the 19th century, its population was about 100,000, which would have made it in the year 1800, you know, one of the largest cities in the Islamic world for sure. Um, and uh, Madrasa construction uh, really boomed uh, under the Mangat dynasty, particularly um, in the second half of the 19th century. Of course, uh, like the rest of Central Asia, Bukhara fell under Russian rule um, in, in, the 18, in uh, 1868, if I remember rightly. Um, what is unique about uh, Bukhara and the neighboring Khanates of Kiva and Kokand if I'm pronouncing those correctly, is they retained a kind of semi-autonomous status within the Russian Empire. 
unlike other Muslim territories uh, such as uh, the you know the Volga Ural region, Kazan and Tatarstan and so on. Um, and that meant that scholarly culture continued to flourish under Russian rule really until the Bolshevik period. Um, and because of the semi-autonomy, and in fact, you know, Russian rule in, in many, many cases actually strengthened um, the, uh, the Mangat Emir's control of the hinterland, uh, the, the building of railway networks and so on, actually facilitated migration to Bukhara and strengthened these trans-regional trans networks in many respects. Crucially, because the, the Mangat Emirs were left almost to their own devices, patronage continued. And that is why this particular model and style of scholarship continued to its importance. In terms of Islamic law, uh, and I'm aware that there have been a lot of important recent uh, publications on Islamic law in, in, in Russian and Soviet Central Asia by, for instance, Paolo Sartori and, and Nathan Spanos and many others. It's, we're really enjoying a flourishing of, of scholarship on, on, on Muslim Central Asia in this later period at the moment. Right. Um, but for instance, uh, Qadi courts uh, did have complete jurisdiction over law. Uh, and uh, we know that the, the had punishments, for instance, in the late 19th century uh, were enforced for offenses like the drinking of wine. And uh, a British intelligence official interestingly mentions that the, the punishment of uh, stoning for adulterers was, was carried out now and then. It doesn't seem to have been extremely rare in this context. Uh, it's... Now, I, I don't want to come across as completely uncritical, but this, this is a remarkable work right. uh, because of its range, the kinds of sources it draws on, and the claims it makes, which, which really, you know, it tells us more broadly about the, the relevance of post-classical models of scholarship in, in the Bukharan context. So he does compare and contrast, say, what was going on in the Ottoman Empire in the same period, and you did not have a huge amount of migration, certainly not from uh, uh, Istanbul, say, to Bukhara in this period. But the, in terms of the, the kinds of texts and, and, and the canon um, that scholars studied, there were large overlaps with the South Asian Dars in his army, so the Hidayah was the most influential uh, legal text. So, so, so these were so all thoroughly Yes, and uh, you would not be able to secure appointment as a Qadi unless you were a Hanafi, or at least implemented, you know, Hanafi, Hanafi vision of law. Right. Uh, alongside this, I should say, uh, as well as the Arabic corpus, which included, uh, as, as is true of the, uh, much of the Sunni world in this period, uh, at least in the eastern, its eastern half, uh, texts like Baydawi's Tafsir and uh, the Mishkat al-Masabih, uh, this hadith kind of compendium. Right. Uh, but Persian texts and Persianate learning were supremely important. Right. Um, and the, the study of the Divan of Hafiz, for instance, was tremendously important part, uh, often pursued as a sort of elective or postgraduate aspect of the curriculum. But what is the form of knowledge and culture that, you know, a Bukharan or Alam who lived in Bukhara had to master to be regarded uh, as, as competent? It was a kind of Perso-Islamic learning, not only the, you know, the Divan of Hafiz, uh, but also the Hidayah of, of Marghinani. So it's, it's an interesting world, and there are important parallels, but also important distinctions between the scholarly culture of Bukhara in this period and, say, Istanbul and Delhi and Lucknow and what have you. 
And I mean, and, and, and what you've described in many respects strikes me actually as not too dissimilar from the forms in which the Darsan and the forms that the Darsan Nizami might have taken in the 19th century, um, which was at the point at that point. Uh, in a sense, Persian was the lingua franca of Islamic sort of scholarship. Yes, so yes. It makes me wonder to what extent is this tied in with, um, you know, Indo-Islamic culture and the Mughal Empire as well. Very good. So uh, he does. A, James Pickett does a wonderful job of discussing these networks and occasionally the, the the flow, the migration of scholars and books happened in one direction, but not in the other. So for instance, mm -hmm. yes, you would have Bukhar and Ulama who settled in Istanbul, but it didn't really happen the other way around. Um, he points out that uh, I should say uh, Bukhara is, uh, yes, Persian was Persian Arabic uh, were the languages of Haikata. Um, Persian was the language uh, of administration in the right. Bukharan Emirate. Right. Something that, that only changes in, in the 20th century. Uh, but the, the Mangit dynasty, these were Turkic military elites. So kind of pattern we find very commonly in the Islamic world after the, the Mongol conquests is, you know, a Persian, uh, especially the eastern half of the Islamic world, as I said, a sort of Persianate cultural elite, per, or Perso-Islamic cultural elite, who did, of course, most Arabic texts as well, combined right. with a Turkic sort of military uh, yes. Military political elite, and these sounds were, to me very much like basically the Mughals. <laughs> yes, and, and there are important parallels. Now, you important parallels with um, with uh, with South Asia. I mean, he he does say, for instance, lithographic texts produced in South Asia did circulate in in Central Asia and Bukhara specifically, right. uh, which is quite interesting because he, he also notes that. Turkic texts written and printed in Istanbul did not circulate in Bukhara in the 19th century. So mm -hmm. um, Bukhara was a kind of regional center of Persianate culture, mm -hmm. but there were rival and in many cases larger and, and more kind of prestigious centers of Persianate culture, including, uh, say, for instance, Istanbul. And of course, the the, uh, the, the Qajar Iran and, and, uh, and Iran later is, is a bit more complicated because of the sectarian dimension. I mean, the sectarian identity did not quite work in the same way. But for instance, you know, your Hanafi training would be useless in Iran in, uh, in Qajar Iran and, and right. similarly. So, so th those were the kinds of barriers that mattered. Um, in terms of Sufism, mm -hmm. uh, Pickett says that uh, the uh, Naqshbandi Mujaddidis were basically the only game in town, uh, right. but uh, it was very common to collect multiple Sufi affiliations and, and lineages. Right. Uh, but as I said, uh, the, the ulama and the Sufis were not distinct social groups, and, and right. the tensions you might find in other contexts are really not here. Um, because, and that's partly because the, they, the scholars, again, to, to, to invoke, invoke the title again, were polymaths of Islam. These were, right, right. you know, if you were that's a it, poet, you were probably a alim. Right. Uh, and, and not only that, this extends to uh, even the occult sciences, which were cultivated by ulama in Bukhara. Right, right. Which uh, is an aspect of post-classical Islam as well that um, yes. talks about. Yes, yes so and, and uh, occult was also cultivated. Yeah. Of course, and especially in the scholarship of, of people like um, Matt Melvin Kuski. Yes. Uh, these were certainly in, in the context Pickett talks about, whether it's geomancy, uh, Ramel, 
letterism, deference, so on, even alchemy. And so these were considered intellectually respectable. They were cultivated by a relatively small number of, of Bukhara. They looked at askance by some of the jurists and theologians, perhaps? Or? No, uh, in the Bukharan context. In the Bukharan context, no. Not, not, at, all, because, not at all. Because you do and have fact, that dimension in the other parts, in, in the Middle East. Of more. course. Um, now, yes, the, how should I put this? I, uh, Pickett says explicitly, geomancy and letterism were not considered forms of sorcery or sihir. Right. right. And you would not lose prestige as a alam. And there's something we find across the post-classical Islamic uh, period. Right. You know, much earlier on, you know, once, say, for instance, astrology and astronomy begin to divert or at least right. become distinct branches of knowledge from about the 10th century of the common era onwards, right. you do find who embrace astronomy while being critical of astrology. Yes. And you find plenty of criticism of letterism and other things. It seems to have diminished as far as I can tell in the post-classical period. In, in the Bukharan context in particular, uh, this critique seems to be largely absent. And, uh, you know, that, that's of, of for a piece with... Familiar sort of viewers, uh, for, for less familiar viewers, do you want to explain a little, elaborate slightly about the concept of letterism? Uh, what exactly yes, so um, I'm by no means an expert uh, sure. <laughs> in any of these branches of knowledge. But letterism, both things like letterism and geomancy, these are, I would guess, primarily forms of prognostication of predicting the future. Yeah or, you know, divining uh, auspicious signs, you know, should I pursue this course of action? Should I, I do that other, other action? Uh, it's a bit like if I can trivialize, trivialize it, you know, in, you used to get in the 1990s, these big eight balls that you would shake and then a solution would appear, you should do this, you shouldn't do it. Okay, it's a much more intellectually sophisticated version of that. Um, so geomancy involves, uh, I mean, I actually know very little about it. It's to do with um, particular marks on the ground and all of this. I, uh, letterism is, um, you know, the, the alphabet, each num uh, uh, letter corresponds to a particular number and the numeric values can be significant and right. You know, right. anyway, and so on. But if so, you look at, uh, I mean, there's lots of scholarship on this now. Matt Melvin, Kuski, Liana Saif, and others have written a lot about this. Right, right. So I'm keen to actually um, sort of uh, encourage viewers, if you have any questions, please feel free to ask them. So far, I haven't um, received anything in particular, but I'm going to sort of, if it's okay with yourself, Omar, I'm going to perhaps divert the conversation in certain directions, sure. which which seem interesting and uh, sort of... Um, Good. But hopefully viewers now have a broad sense of what the book is viewing. Of course, there are many right. things going on. Right, right, right. And uh, I mean, it's also, um, I think, valuable to get a perspective. Uh, a lot of us, when we study uh, Islamic studies, uh, it's historically been very uh, Middle Eastern centric. And so, you know, there's been this move within the field to try and look at uh, uh, sort of areas which have been uh, ignored. And, and very often these areas have great richness. You know, South Asia is one of those areas that yeah. uh, someone like myself will have natural affinities to. But again, places like Mawar Anhar, although he, he avoids that term, um, but the Bukharan sort of milieu, um, you know, are something of a black hole, especially since I think uh, someone like myself of Bangladeshi heritage can come into sort of the diaspora uh, in, in a place like the UK, pursue Islamic studies, and then let my heritage, in a sense, direct my interests to a certain extent. But you don't have very much of that um, from those regions, and particularly after the sort of 
communist era um, when, the, when they were part of the Soviet yeah. bloc. Uh, now, there are some brilliant, uh, and I've been reading a fair, fair bit about Central Asia recently. There are many reasons for that neglect. Part right. of it is the historical privileging of the sort of Arabo-Islamic elements of Islamic culture, right. uh, which I, I'm by no means averse to. And I, you know, that's what yeah, I, I find most interesting. <laughs> the bread and butter uh, of most, most of us. Of course. So there are, you know, the discipline has tr particular traditions and trajectories and histories, and these have influenced. Right. Of course, now, uh, you know, what's, what's been written about most uh, now we were fortunate to be in this period where you find scholarship on neglected periods of the post-classical period, especially from the 14th century onwards, right. that had received short shrift in uh, for most of the 20th century and before, yeah. and regions as well. So in particular, uh, places like Central Asia, Southeast Asia, and, and others. And th this is really a, a wonderful development to be, right. uh, and many fine scholars undertaking work in as, as indeed uh, Pickett himself, dusty manuscript libraries right. in, you know, the, in Central Asia. As you indicated, Usama, very correctly, yeah. in Central Asia, there is an additional element, which is yeah. across the Muslim majority world, uh, you had disruption in the 19th and 20th centuries. The degree of rupture in Soviet Central Asia is especially pronounced. Yeah. And in the epilogue, he, he really does kind of wax lyrical about this. Uh, and he says, for instance, a alam in Bukhara in the year 1800 hmm. would have much more in common with his scholarly peers uh, in, say, the 1300s hmm. than uh, in 1950, just 150 right. years afterwards. So the degree of rupture is very dramatic. Persian, but, you know, the, although Islam survives, of course, yeah. and throughout yeah. the period... After some initial attempts to suppress Islam and other religions, eventually the Soviets give up trying to do that. They they realize it's a, it's a losing it's a it's a hopeless cause. But um, yeah. at the same time, the, the Persian cosmopolis that Pickett talks about so much, you know, knowledge of Hafiz, the, the cultivation of per Persian as a language of culture, yeah. dies in almost all of Central Asia except in Tajikistan, where it sort of becomes a national language and, and is written right. in Cyrillic script. Um, but uh, this Persian cosmopolis is, is killed by, by the Soviets, and I, he never... never Not in my ignorance. I mean, in Bukhara today, um, so then they don't speak uh, a variant of Persian. Uh, I mean, Tajik is not a variant of Persian. Tajik is, but that, mm. that situation is unique to Tajikistan. And it, it's not referred to as Persian. It's called uh, the Tajik language, and it's written in the Cyrillic script. Right, of course. And, you know, we yeah. find, in fact, uh, as far as I can tell, all Islamic languages were written primarily, if I'm not mistaken, in, say, the year 1900, yeah. in a variant of the Arabic script. Right. All languages with Albanian, with uh, Somalian, right. with... Even you find manuscripts in Bangladesh where Bengali is being written in Arabic script. Yes. Yeah. Uh, so that that is very normal. Things change really because of national. I mean, it's, it's a shame it doesn't uh, allude to, to, to Jab Ahmed and the Balkans to Bengal complex, but you can really see right. elements of that sort of right. in, in the background in terms of the, the forms of scholarship cultivated, the texts that were popular. So uh, he, when he talks about ulama. So, uh, executive or sultan relations, right. Torsi's uh, political thought was very influential. Right. And also, again, going back to post-classical Islamic culture, mm -hmm. this tradition of sacred kingship, 
was very much alive in this context. So, you know, the, the Sahib Qiran, the Lord right. of the Auspicious Conjunction, right. uh, so, uh, things uh, I find distasteful, but nonetheless. <laughs> right. Yes, I mean, you, you've expressed, expressed your distaste for some of this stuff in the past, but... Um, I mean, <laughs> not the book, I, I should emphasize, not the book. The book not the book, one. no, of course, of course. But, I mean, these are just comments about certain aspects of, you know, Islamic culture of those times, which um, strike some of us as quite bizarre and perhaps you know at odds with islamic culture proper in, well, in, I mean, in our reading of this is very much debated in scholarship and it's a good thing that the, the sort of orientalist with the capital o tendency to emphasize you know the decadence and the right. um, yeah, lack of originality all this, this has been basically dismissed but right. uh, for instance in, in ahmed shamsi's book and i don't want to make the book uh, or to represent, misrepresent the book as making sure. claims it doesn't make. He is focusing sure. on a particular geographic context. Yeah. Yes. Uh, but he he critiques towards the end of that book uh, a kind of uh, tendency to overreact against the the Orientalist tropes of uh, on, on post classical culture and right. says, well, you know, this isn't purely an invention of people like Muhammad Abdu. Actually, if we look right. at in Egypt, which is the context he focuses on more, more than right. Egypt and the Levant, mm -hmm. um, we do find that manuscript holdings were impoverished in these areas and that you know, scholars did have quite narrow textual horizons and did produce quite, um, well, particular for styles of writing, commentary and hawasi and all of this, yeah. that, you know, again, fairly limited horizon. So we have to sort of balance these, these competing perspectives I, I, um, sure. I want to come back, hopefully, to a discussion of um, you know the interlinking with uh, Ahmed Shamsi's conception of the post-classical. Um, and I just want to remind um, viewers: if you have any questions, please feel free to sort of um, ask uh, in the chat. I'm and, very happy to keep talking. But, but I, I, I actually, I mean, I'm I'm perfectly happy actually to sort of ask. Uh, I have a series of questions actually, which I wanted to oh. ask. And let me begin with one which I think uh, a lot of us, uh, a lot of um, our viewers may actually be thinking about as well, that we're looking at Bukhara um, and Bukhara has a certain resonance within sort of the Muslim uh, global Sunni sort of community uh, because of uh, Muhammad bin Ismail al-Bukhari. Um, but even to this day, I mean, uh, I'm reminded of a photo taken by Jonathan Brown in his Misquoting Muhammad, where he, he shows, um, you know, a bride visiting uh, sort of the shrine of Bukhari. He says it seems to be a popular site for weddings or wedding right. photos. For, for, you know, it's an auspicious site. We want to take baraka and things like yeah. that. So in a sense, uh, the question would be, to what extent is that link to Muhammad ibn Ismail Bukhari, who dies, of course, 256 of the Hijri calendar, 870. Um, so centuries before the, um, like a thousand years before the period that we're thinking about, to what extent is he still valorized? And is there, because I, I remember reading in the introduction, the, the notion of the myth of Bukhara. Yes. And, and I didn't get, you know, to the point where he was actually elaborating what yes. that meant. Was that linked? That's, that's a fantastic question. Now, uh, Al-Bukhari himself barely features, I think, not at all in, in the book. He does talk extensively about the myth of Bukhara, which becomes particularly strong in, in the colonial period. And, you know, and he he's <laughs> somewhat... Uh, 
well, not sarcastically, but Bukhara today is a, a sort of museum of the Uzbek national heritage, effectively. It's a sort of museum. Right. And uh, yes, Bukhara was never a cultural backwater. I, mm -hmm. We're fortunate in that from its Umayyad conquest, it wasn't yeah. conquered by the, the caliphs. Uh, the, the, the Mongols did you know, run riot through it, as far as I recall. Good question. So the, the Mongols uh, did not destroy the city. Okay. Ibn Battuta, uh, in the 14th, does deliberately avoid staying there. But unlike uh, neighboring cities in Central Asia, it was not destroyed. Yes, the Mongols did enter it three times, I, I believe he mentions. Right. Right. And uh, Bukhara was never a cultural backwater, right. but uh, Pickett stresses its fortunes did fluctuate. Uh, it was often overshadowed, especially in the Timurid period, for instance, by Samarkand, which was the Timurid capital. And uh, Belch and, and other Central Asian cities like this were, were often more important. Now, right. Right. it really comes into its own um, immediately before the Mangit dynasty takes power in the mid-18th century. Right. Um, but it sees its greatest cultural flourishing in the Mangit period. And right. he talks about whether it's madrasa construction or... And even the historic buildings, he said most of the historic buildings of Bukhara do not predate the 16th century. And most of them are, you know, even later than that. It's uh, so it's a wonderful exercise in, I don't want to say demythologization, right, right, that's right. Quite radical, but yes, I'm mean, scholars. Well, that in, in a sense, yes, in a sense, because we think of the yeah. sort of architecture of Bukhara and the sort of the blue coloring, for example, that is associated yeah. with that part of the region. And, you know, my mm. understanding is art historians connect a lot of that to um, sort of Mongol um, yes. culture. I should, I should show this wonderful map he has of Bukhara. Yeah, it's very um, now, yeah. one, yes, but you, you get a sense of it. I mean, like yeah. any Damascus or other, other by, by the standards of modern cities, it's a rather small place, but by right. 100,000 is a very respectable population size at the beginning Absolutely. of the 19th century. Um, and, 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 and Bukhara plays, notwithstanding the, you know, the fact that Istanbul, of course, dwarfed it, you know, both right. in terms of population and as a center of scholarship, but right. Bukhara played an oversized role. For instance, mm. um, relative to its, its size, say compared to Istanbul. So mm. when you think, for instance, that uh, by the late 19th century, there were between 150 and 200 Madaris in Bukhara, mm -hmm. uh, in which between four and 7,000 students studied. At uh, really any time. Yes, that's scale. This makes it really a, a kind of um, incredible. Yeah, it put, puts it on the map and in, in but, but it also, I mean, in a sense, what you again, I you know, I don't, I don't have an objection to the myth, myth of Bukhara as a, as a term because this is what scholarship can do. It, you know, once you're producing that much scholarship, you can then create a narrative about yes. you, about your identity. About Precisely. Your and then this kind of cultivation of, I mean, the, the writing of city histories is, of course, a very old genre. And you right. get your first examples in, right. well, I would guess, no later than the third, third Islamic century. Um, but scholars in the Mangit period produce, you know, reams and reams of, and the Pickett draws on extensively biographical dictionaries and tazkiras and city history. So, of course, right. as with any other city, you have the fabrication of hadith on the virtues of Bukhara. <laughs> right, right, right. Uh, yes, Bukhara yes. Sharifa. Very unsavory, but... And the tombs of, of prophets, so the tomb of Job was an important site. Right, of right, right. And the tombs of local right. scholars uh, like the Mahbubi uh, right. 
Sadr al Sharia al Habubi. I mean, the Mahbubi dynasty, it's really a dynasty of scholars. Uh, but you get this kind of, and he has a whole chapter really de devoted to the subject of the creation of. Uh, I, I apologize if, if you can hear my two year old oh, speaking with oh, me in the background. But yes. That's all right, it happens. Right. Um, I mean, that's, I think that's uh, truly fascinating. And, and the scale that you're speaking about in terms of, I mean, it really um, strikes, if there's 150, I'm, I, you know, I'm, I'm sure it's and not. Some of, some of these would be tiny. Some of them would be smaller, more sort of boutique madrasas, shall we say. <laughs> but, uh, but, I mean, 150 centers of, um, you know, scholarship is not, um, is not uh, in a single not to, not to look what down one's nose at. I, but yes, yeah. this means Bukhara was a major, regionally yeah. speaking, at least a major yeah. scholarly yeah. center. Absolutely. And why why did this happen? You know, Pickett emphasizes madrasa construction increased during the Mangan period quite dramatically. Especially, mm -hmm. you know, even under Russian rule, this stuff is. And happening. what were why? the motivations behind uh, behind that sort of growth? Do you have any like like the like I suppose the the motivation in any in, in, in the other periods for madrasa and mosque construction. Right. Right. Uh, legitimacy for rulers and patronage of culture and so on. Mm -hmm. I mean, um, the 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 political elites themselves would have received a basic madrasa education, and then you know, uh, so right. they were, and very occasionally they did themselves excel in scholarship. The rulers of Bukhara, but fascinating. Again, more so than other other parts of the Islamic world in Islam. Yes, and I, I would well. That, right. That's hard to assess, yeah. at least for me. But right. again, why, why did this happen? Because there was a scholarly culture. You know, it, you didn't have these bifurcations between ulama and Sufis as social groups, right. between the poetry of Hafiz and Maghrinani's Hidayah. I mean, it was one scholarly culture that anyone, well, rulers could to, to some extent participate in and certainly patronize uh, or mm. bestow patronage on. And... Um, by by the year 1900, Bukhara had about 350 mosques, which is, as far as I understand, a similar number to what London, that great city of Islam, <laughs> has, has today. Uh, so I'm going to take uh, the conversation in a direction that, I mean, um, again, you may view with slight distaste without <laughs> an academic hat on. But, uh, you know, this is also a period, um, the post-classical period, which celebrates Akbarian Sufism. And so when you're talking about sort of um, the ulama all being Sufis and um, Central Asia also has great um, Sufi figures like Jami in particular comes to mind, but just a whole host of um, figures from, from a number of Turuq. Um, to what extent, you, you know, we, we've talked, um, you know, separately about a, a figure like Abdul Ghani and Nabulsi um, and the way in which he, to a certain extent, is a polymath of Islam. He's a Sufi, he's a Fatih, yeah. he's a, a, a poet, he's a mystical poet and, a, you know, um, he, very talented individual, but steeped in this Akbarian sort of world, which, um, you know, has all sorts of tensions, obviously, with the exoteric forms of Islam. Well, we, we, you and I might say that, but <laughs> if, if you were an Ottoman member of the Ottoman religious elite Absolutely. or a Bukharan, certainly not. I mean, this yeah. was part of their world, their scholarly right. Uh, world. Right, right. I mean, Ibn Arabi does not figure in the book almost <laughs> at all. But I will say yeah. that from the outset, I mean, going back to Sir Hindi himself, of course, right. Akbari and Sufism was an essential dimension. Right this Naqshbandi Mujaddidi, I know it was a particular take on that tradition. Mm. Uh, but 
I mean, Akbarian Sufism was not marginal in Islamic uh, life, religious right. cultural life at all. Right, right. Uh, uh, I mean, in the Ottoman context, you're talking, especially after their conquest of, of Damascus and, and Egypt and so on, 15, 16 to 17. Right. You know, it's the Ottomans who, who first, as far if I'm not mistaken, who build, um, build uh, who make Ibn Arabi's tomb a major kind of religious yes. site in Damascus. Yeah. And there is actually some scholarship on the Ottoman reception of, of Ibn Arabi. Uh, uh, the, the name escapes me, but it's, right. it's an important PhD dissertation. I, I can perhaps send you the link. Let me know later. Yes, I mean, in a sense, um, let me let me where so just on the uh, sort of discovery of the um, tomb. To as far as I recall, it was basically you know one of the. I don't know if Abdul Ghani Nabulsi himself had to do with it, but basically, no, no, no. This, this, is long, this is centuries before. Right, right. Abdul it was, Ghani, and Abdul Ghani's, you know, dies in the 18th. Yes. Uh, um, but I mean, in a sense, uh, you know, the, the rediscovery of these sorts of tombs through the process of Kashf to a certain extent, right? Yes, and, and Ahmed Shamsi in his book has an excellent discussion of the so called tomb of Hussein, which I think is a model for how this kind of scholarship should be done in the sense that it's it's pure mythologization i mean there's no I, I wouldn't be surprised if there's no reference to the tomb of bukhari before the 20th century or something like this it's really right. not surprising and it's, it's true of any part of the islamic world you know even mecca itself people complain about the destruction of the tomb of hazrat khadija but i i really wonder if people identified the tomb of khadija before before the 19th century or something I mean, this, this is my particular perspective on things. Sure. I mean, I, th I think, I mean, uh, there's obviously, there are slightly separate problems of the destruction of heritage, which could be a a, a, a place where research could take place of great value. And also... Well, that's one particular way of conceptualizing these spaces yeah. as heritage, kind of. Uh, but right. uh, the tomb of Job and Bukhara would have been an right. important site of, of right. pilgrimage and yeah. devotional practice. And, and one, one thing uh, Pickett mentions is in Bukhara, at least, and I would guess more widely in Central Asia, tombs would be marked with sort of staffs with uh, sort of animal horns and horse tails, very kind of almost shamanistic right. practice. Uh, yeah. So, yeah, that, that's just interesting. I, mean, I, I remember, um, <laughs> forgive me, I forget his name. This is, I believe Carol Hillenbrand's um, husband, who's a great art, art historian from the University of Edinburgh. Robert Hillenbrand. Robert yes. Hillenbrand, forgive me. So obviously, um, I, I speak to someone from the August Institution of the University of Edinburgh. Yes. Um, but uh, he gave a, a lecture at Oxford last year where he presented sort of some of the, um, uh, what do you call it, the uh, military um, paraphernalia of um, the Mamluks. Um, and, and uh, you know, what was striking is the use of animal imagery and these sorts of things as, uh, you know, part of the heraldry of those cultures in a way yeah. that you would also expect to see in um, sort of European heraldry, hist historically speaking. So, you know, I think, and, you know, I certainly know from the, the Hanafi madhab, these sorts of things were seen with a certain degree of benign sort of disregard yeah. generally. I, there is some great scholarship on images in Islamic law. Uh, and art historians have a slightly different take on this, and Christiane Gruber and and, and others have, have written on this. But from an Islamic legal perspective, the book by Ahmed Rabin, Hisba Arts and Crafts, is very good. There's a great discussion by um, 
gosh, uh, Jamal Elias. Right. Uh, in Asha's cushion, I think that's by general, and, and indeed others. But yes, you're right, jurists were almost uniformly critical of uh, certainly three-dimensional images, and the great majority right. of them also two-dimensional images right. of living things. There's something that only really changes at the end of the 19th century in, in the early 20th. Mohammed Abdu was very influential in this respect. Hmm. And of course, in the late 19th century, you have extensive debate about photography. Many of the works right. on the still in manuscript. Fascinating. But I mean, um, I was kind of uh, alluding to the fact that certain types of imagery, when it's sort of considered to be insignificant um, on a coin, for example, I mean, the, the early Muslims used the coins of the um, Byzantines for, for the long, you know, for a very long yeah. period. Um, and well, that, I mean, they, did, they did replace them quite quickly. They did replace them, but it took quite a few decades, if I recall correctly. Yes. And so, um, you know, uh, but the fact that they did replace them does indicate something as well. Um, oh. I mean, it, when I uh, studied in sort of a Darul Olam setting, if I recall correctly, the discussions we used to have sometimes uh, in, in the Mudakara, um, I remember being told that uh, the in the Hanafi Madhab, it was generally considered if you saw it on the ground from standing and you couldn't really discern its limbs, then that was too small to be a relevant concern. Yes, I mean, jurists have all kinds of discussions of the details. Yes. Some say if it lacks anything that gives it life, then this is right. fine. Others say right, right. it's too small or if it's a kind of contemptible place like on the floor right, right, or right. in the car, this is fine. I mean, they have all kinds of disagreements about the details, what's acceptable yes. and what's not. But as a rule one, according to this, this it's for almost universal understanding of yours. One should not be producing images of living things. But I, I fear we're getting a right. bit off topic. No, no. Uh, I mean, I, I think that's that's perfectly fine. Um, no, not I to say that such did not happen. And Shahab Ahmed has an excellent discussion of this in, in what is Islam. Um, and and I, you know, this kind of goes back to last week's discussion with Kevin Reinhardt, where you have the sort of standard Islam, um, the Koine and the uh, dialect, and and I think uh, in many respects. You know, all those aspects, uh, jurists kind of upheld a certain type of standard Islam, but a lot of the time in practice, they would have recognized the artificiality of aspects of those sorts of things when it comes to dealing with practice, I think. Yes, uh, it's a good point. And I, I should emphasize that our comments on, on images really pertain only to Sunni ulama, as far as I can establish. I'm right, yes, yes. well informed about religious iconography and yes. among, among Shia, which of course is, is, is a major subject. So I, I, I wanted to sort of switch gears slightly, um, you know, we've got about 15 minutes left perhaps, but I wanted to talk a little bit about um, a, a dimension which I got a flavor of in the introduction, mm. uh, but I, I think, you know, as someone who's read the book, you will have uh, looked at very detailed discussions about relations with rulers, yes. um, specifically sort of the way in which, um, you know, and I'm, I'm personally interested in this because of my own work on, um, you know, oppositional ulama specifically. Um, I, uh, and, and I sort of wonder, there's acts of patronage and people like Mehatina have really extensively discussed the way in which scholars also formed, you know, oppositional groups in which they demanded the rights of the disenfranchised in society and made sure that, uh, you know, the rulers didn't overstep their own um, mm. Uh, prerogatives and try and usurp the wealth of, for example, the poor. And I wonder um, if you can comment on exactly how this is, you know, brought out. Maybe not that particular dimension, but how it's manifested sure. in Pickett's book. Great, great question. There's, there's a one wonderful chapter in the book on, on ulama and, and their relations. Um, 
Now, there is this trope, as you, as you said, of resistance. You find it in all kinds of sources to, to rulers and their authority. And that does hap actually happen. You know, it's, not, it's not made up. Right. And it was a, a virtue many scholars sought to cultivate and so on. Right. But in, in some sense, society can, if that is the norm, yeah. society cannot actually no, function. function. Yeah. So That's just as Qasem Zeman points out when writing of the proto-Sunni elite and the Abbasids, um, the the norm was actually cooperation rather than confrontation. Absolutely. And you know the the basics of religious life, like the enforcement of law and, and justice and and so on, I mean, would have been impossible without this collaboration. So he does note occasional moments of tension and conflict, right. but the norm is collaboration and patronage, and uh, you know it's it's really accentuated because of the extent to which. Rulers and uh, and ulama in this Bukharan context were really participants in the same culture. Right. You know, they, right. they they appealed to and recognized many of the same norms. And many of the tensions you find when it comes to, for instance, enforcement of law, siyasa justice, and mm -hmm. in particular, you know, mazalim courts and these sorts of things that enforced norms that could sometimes at least be regarded as extra Islamic or even non-Islamic. Right. Um, there were there was no Mazalim jurisdiction in in the Bukharan context. So you know, right. um, although uh, Bukharan ulama were not bureaucratized, they were not part of the, they were not um, centralized and, and and brought co-opted by the state in the same way as happens in the in the Ottoman period. And, and I think the Ottoman case in the pre-modern Islamic world, as far as I can tell, seems to be more or less unique. Yeah. Um, and and Abdurrahman Atul has uh, has written about this, uh, and it begins really after the conversation. Where has he written about this? Atul, it's, it's a book, scholars, scholars and uh, scholars and sultans, I believe it's called. Okay. Cambridge University Press. Right. That that's a process that begins really after the conquest of Constantinople, but you know the creation of a learned hierarchy, the, the Almiya, and right. your know, particular way of organizing medaris and hierarchization and so on. Now you do find uh, things in the Ottoman context that you find in Bukhara like important scholarly dynasties that in this period seem to have almost monopolized higher religious offices like the post of Sheikh al-Islam, which effectively meant the most important scholar in Bukhara as recognized by the emirs. Right. Um, the post of chief qadi, and and right. you also had the muhtasib and so on, other posts too in, in the religious uh, of uh, important religious offices, but you know, it's it's not as bureaucratized and centralized as happened in the Ottoman context. And to to a great extent, I mean, because they are participants in the same culture, because rulers are such great patrons of learning. I mean. Yeah. It, to some extent, Russia does, does have an impact on this because, you know, it gives rulers more independence in their authority because the Russian Empire has guaranteed their ter territorial integrity in some sense and their, their rule across the hinterland. Right. So in the late 19th century, they're able to kind of play all the families off each other to one extent. And it wasn't, wasn't quite as possible before. But for the most right. part, the, the pattern is one of collaboration, fruitful collaboration, I yes, think. Yes. I mean... Uh, one of the things, the, the impression I get from your description of the Russian situation is that, you know, a lot of the time the ulama um, provide uh, legitimacy to the ruler. Because, oh, absolutely. Yes. And, but, but the thing is, if the Russians are now, in a sense, dealing with the security of their suzerain, so to speak, 
then yes. you know the ulama become a little less important and you can play them off one another maybe that's well I don't know if that's a dimension of this as well it's the the reason that uh, and I, I should stress what happens in bukhara and kiva is is u- unique among muslims in russia so you know compare the volga ural region in what's today tatarstan you know further west right. Right. And Nathan Spanaus has written a lot of important scholarship on this. Right. Right. I look uh, to we should probably devote, devote an episode to his book, which is really cool sure, as well. Sure. So um, what happens, um, Bukhara, Kiva and Kukan, the three Khanates, become right. sort of, um, they're kind of left semi-autonomous. Kukan later becomes, you know, subject to direct trust. And also, but Bukhara and Kiva... Mm-hmm. Uh, in, in the 1860s, 70s onwards, basically are left almost to their own devices. Right. Of course, you know, Ru- Russia does have overall authority, but for instance, uh, what uh, compared to the Volga Ural region where Muslim religious elites become integrated into this Russian kind of bureaucracy, the spiritual uh, assembly of Orenburg, for instance, does not happen in Bukhara. So um, they're not subject to Russian rule in at all the same way in Bukhara. And that's why this scholarly culture, the Persianate cosmopolis, yeah. continues to flourish yeah. continues uh, up to until yeah. Soviet rule. And it's really Soviet rule that, that changes everything. You know, many, uh, whilst I don't think there was, a, of course, you know, modernization and so on. The yeah. advent of the Jadid reformist movement was important, although they remained quite marginal until... Sorry, the Jadid reformist movement, uh, if yes. you can elaborate a little on yes. that. Um, and Adib Khalid has written extensively on them there. Right. Like, they're sort of the Central Asian analog of reformist movements you find right. across the right. world right. in the late 19th century onwards, right. Right. you know, comparable to Abdu and so on. Of course, there are important distinctions between these movements. I don't want to say sure. they're all the same, uh, but, but they, they share prior, some priorities at least. And, and they do, to an extent, read each other's scholarship. And Tatar scholars right. in, uh, in elsewhere in the Russian Empire were very avid readers of Al-Manar, for instance. He, he right, yes. Well, Al-Manar has a reputation. I think it, quite a deservedly inter- international reputation. Um, yes, know, and, uh, and this is not... Scholars yes. would be awaiting its publication you know, and would publish in it as well. And indeed others as well, of course. Um, I, I wanted to actually sort of maybe throw in a comment uh, and, and perhaps a reflection. I mean, it's, it's speculative on my part, but sure. you know, sometimes I think it's important to um, point out the way in which, you know, what when I say that the ulama to a certain extent function as a legitimating force for the rulers. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I want to make important distinctions. I, I just finished sort of editing a, a chapter on Abdullah bin Bayah, right, uh, in, in a book which I hope to publish next year. And um, the sort of legitimation that is taking place in that relationship with, for example, the United Arab Emirates is dramatically different in my estimation to the sh- sorts of re- legitimation legitimate legitimation, if you permit the phrase, <laughs> that is is kind of necessary for the proper functioning of a state and a, of a society based on, you know, that form of governance and rule of law. Um, and so what you have is, I mean, I'll take an example, which is a non-Islamic example because of, of its familiarity to us. But if we think about the United States government or the British government and the way in which universities um, and particularly elite universities tend to be feeders for the major institutions of state. Um, it's not that they are then, you know, um, the universities are acting in some mercenary fashion for the purpose of the state to be able to get their money back or something like that. Mm. But there's there are these symbiotic relationships which are kind of natural and mutually legitimating. Of which, course. You know, which which permit that sort of... And, and, and I, I should I, stress I, that, you know, the, the nature of this relationship... 
is 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 dynamic. So absolutely, what you find in Bukhara is. Of, of course, in the modern period, the state has the upper hand. Um, almost of course. But for instance, Thomas Bauer <laughs> talks about the ulama, I believe it's in, the ulamaization of the bureaucracy in the Mamluk right. period. Right. Yeah. So in, in the early Abbasid period, there was a distinction between Kutab, the secretarial class, and and ulama, if you can speak of, speak of them. Right. But in other contexts, this, these disparities were kind of much more muted or even absent. Bukhara is one example of this. Right, 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 right. Uh, I'm, I'm less familiar with that distinction between the Qutb and the ulama. And perhaps, I mean, we have another perhaps eight minutes or so, but um, do you mind sort of spending a little moment on, on the distinction before yeah, I... Yeah, I, mean, I think it's under-researched, although uh, a right. former colleague at Exeter, Istvan Christon, uh, okay. is, is, is actually working on this. Right. Um, yes. And I, again, you difficult to stress the tensions because people like Ibn Qutayba were these reputable scholars of hadith, and they also wrote works that your kind Kalina of inspiring uh, chancery clerk. Right. Well, in the case of Ibn Qutayba, Ayun al-Akhbar in particular, right, right. these kinds of manuals of, of Arabic culture, effectively compendia right. and anthologies. Right. Uh, so again, it's it's you don't want to overemphasize the distinction, but. Uh, when when Al-Jahid writes about the vices of the secretaries and you have the Shaobi movement, this kind of uh, yeah. anti-Arab quote-unquote movement in, in the third third and fourth Islamic centuries. Um, Al-Jahid writes about this in which of his texts? Um, uh, I mean, the Rasa'il al-Jahid. But I mean, you know, it's, uh, I don't want to get too, too off topic, but the, the key thing is in the Bukharan context, many of these distinctions that might be meaningful elsewhere are, are not meaningful in, in Bukhara. You know, courts right. and bureaucrats received their madrasa training. Right. And Amir has received the madrasa training with, you know, training in the martial arts and all of the, these other right. things. Right. And this is what makes Bukharan scholarly culture so interesting right. because there was this sharing of norms across the Persian cosmopolis. I should emphasize one point uh, before we finish, um, right. and perhaps we'll have time for other things too. Right. Many have emphasized the disjuncture or disjunction between Persianate culture and the Islamic religious tradition or have written of the Shahnameh, for instance, as a secular text. Right. Something Pickett pushes against. Right, right. And he points out, you know, just as a matter of historical observation, for instance, that Bukhara, mm. prior to the Islamic period and its conquest by the Umayyads, was a center of Sogdian culture. Right. The fact that Bukhara subsequently became a center of Persianate culture mm. is a development that is um, a function it's a of, its, of, its, of its integration to the Islamic world. Hmm. And I mean, so, it, in a sense, um, it could indicate that it, it had a lot of structures in place that allowed for that transformation, but it does indicate a transformation. If it's a center of one culture and it kind of transplants to a different culture. Yes, yes. And of course, important role played by the, the sort of steppe, uh, steppe empires, the Mongols and the Seljuks and so on, in, in allowing for the spread of this Persianate culture across a broad region. I mean, Basically, you're talking everywhere outside the Arabophone world and yeah. I suppose parts of Islamic Africa right. uh, the, where this was the case. And it, again, he doesn't refer to Sheikh Ahmed, but he does refer to you know, the, the same Persian poets being studied in Bukhara and in Sarajevo at the same time, right. which is a remarkable, remarkable um, cultural, quite of course in India as well. And, uh, the, yes, yes. And, and, and the, the geographic distances that we're thinking are vast. Um, yes. 
And uh, you well, know, no, this, this is why the term cosmopolis is, is so apt. Right. right. Uh, it was cosmopolitan, and of course, um, you know, one Pickett is very sensitive to the the need to avoid anachronism and to deploy, because of course, in the nineteenth and twentieth centuries, everything is refract, refracted through the lens of nationalism. Uh, but to, you know, the the scholarly, uh, sorry, the, the the political elites were Turkic. Uh, in in the sense of their leading, it's not. I mean, uh, anyway, there were there were these shared norms. That's that's the point I want to emphasize. Thank you. And uh, you know, we have about three minutes or so left. I, I wanted to perhaps give you the opportunity to think about if you know what you you know thought was a little weak in the book, perhaps. Um, that's a good question, and I know it, it follows on from some viewer suggestions we had. Yeah. I want to stress. I pick books that I think are particularly good and worth reading, and right. I want to encourage, you know, viewers to to take a look at them. So, um, that may explain why, <laughs> you know, I don't dwell dwell on criticisms. The, I mean, both uh, the last in terms of like things which will, um, you know, take the scholarship forward. Yes. What aspects are perhaps lacking? A I, little? Honestly, with this book, it's very hard to say because it's a rich text. It's so original. It draws on yes. lots of manuscript sources. It, right. It's the book that really becomes the the stepping stone for future scholars who wish to write about this region. Yes. And partly for that reason, I, I really don't want to undermine what's being done here. I mean, I can't think of any factual errors. Of course, it's not my own area of expertise, and, and yes. someone who who did know more about the period would be able to comment more intelligently on that. Right. Uh, but it's 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 an excellent book, honestly. And, and, I, I and Earth is an, uh, you know a period and a sort of ge a temporality and a geographic region which really has been a black hole um, yes. you know, in so many ways. And so you know to be able to do that so well with so much documentation, as you mentioned, and yes. I, I got a taste of this as I was reading through the yes. introduction as well. And, and, uh, and uh, I mean, it, it recalls that that famous remark of new, well attributed to Newton, at least that we're standing if we see. Father, it's because we stand on the shoulders of giants. I mean, yeah. this book is really, really does help, of course, in conjunction with the works of many, many of Pickett's colleagues in Central Asian studies. Right. It helps to lay a foundation. And it's not really for me, whose field of expertise it is not, but for an, a next generation of scholars, you know, budding PhD students and, and future scholars who will no doubt build on the work and expand, uh, expand on its findings. Right. But on, based on the state of the scholarship now and my own limited expertise, I'm you know it's it's, it's challenging and not. Right. I don't think it would be very intelligent to. <laughs> to I, I can't think of any criticisms honestly, Fantastic. and I don't don't make note of any in, in my notes on the book. So so we have a minute left, and I I real, realize that we um, forgot to well discuss prior to the session if you have a book selected for next week. I do, and I'm Fantastic. I remember to Please. bring it with me. <laughs> so Fantastic. this Fantastic. is the very recent volume, Sharia uh, Justice and Legal Order by the great Rudolf Peters, and this book came out very recently. I should stress that. Uh, it collects 35 previously published articles, so that right. there is not uh, much new content, ex content except for a new introduction by a forward, right. rather, by Rob Gleave, which kind of frames um, the contribution of Peters. And Peters needs no introduction. He's really one of the finest uh, academics working on Islamic law, full stop. Okay. Um, and the book focuses on... Um, 
primarily, I and mean, he writes about other things as well, but the transformation of Islamic law, particularly in Egypt in the 19th century, but he also discusses the 20th and even uh, the 21st. He did quite a lot of important work on Nigeria from the 2000, 2000s onwards. So it's a fantastic book. Um, and I, I, I had read many of his articles before, but having them all in one place and reading them all from beginning to end, of course, kind of does, uh, does make you realize things and see things you haven't seen before. He's also, I mean, he is one of these um, scholars who's very difficult to keep up with because of the rate at which he writes. Yeah. Um, and uh, so, I mean, um, I really look forward to actually finding a, uh, I don't know if it's chronologically ordered, it's probably thematically ordered. Thematically, it's thematically but, ordered. Uh, but I mean, it would be fascinating to, in a sense, trace his own sort of um, scholarly work over mm. a period of time. Yes, and, and uh, Gleave helps to do that in the introduction as fantastic, well. Fantastic, fantastic. So yeah. I, I really look forward to it. It looks like a bit of a, a beefy book, so to speak. But Yes, uh, about 700 pages or so, but I have finished reading it. Fantastic. So um, thank you, everyone, for sort of um, joining us. Uh, this week. Thank you really primarily to yourself, Amr, for spending your time well, thank you for having me. reading the text mm -hmm. and explicating it in a way that is really very interesting and draws on so many other things that you're reading. And, uh, you know, you'll forgive me for interrupting you and asking you, okay, you know, that author, who did they write? Uh, oh, sorry, what text did they write? Can you give us a little bit more information? Just to encourage people, hopefully, to be reading a bit more um, sort of as they uh, enjoy this one hour a week, they can take the opportunity to sort of delve into other areas of scholarship that they haven't previously explored. This week, we didn't spend quite as much time on the sort of my own uh, theological musings, so to speak, but I hope there was some of that. There was some of that, and inevitably, I brought in Sheikh Abdullah bin Bayah. But, uh, <laughs> but I hope uh, that, uh, you know, this has been, again, a uh, uh, an interesting um, uh, and fruitful sort of conversation on the part of uh, myself and Omar for our viewers. And inshallah, we look forward to you joining us next week to discuss Rudolf Peter's book. If you can just give me the title again, Omar. Yes, this is Sharia, Justice and Legal Order, Egyptian right. and Islamic Law Selected Essays. Right. So it's a collection of Rudolf Peter's, the, the very prolific Rudolf Peter's um, sort of articles on Islamic law over a long period of time. And I'm sure this will be extremely interesting for us. And we yes. will definitely not have enough time to cover all of yes. the threads. Yes, there are key themes that emerge. All right. Barakallah fikum, and I look forward to seeing everyone next week. Assalamu alaikum warahmatullahi wabarakatuh. Thank you very much, Farhan. You're welcome.